Hello and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and today I'm joined by Deborah Rowland, a leading figure in HR, multiple author of best-selling books, and program director for IMI's new program for senior leaders, Leading Change. Deborah Rowland is an expert in the area, and Leading Change is what we will be talking about today. Deborah, we're talking over Skype due to the, the ongoing COVID-19, so hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you very much. Are you in the self-isolation mode? or um, Not at the moment, still going about town, but I'm trying very hard not to go on public transport, so that's my only uh, concession right now. It's a lot of anxiety around, and I'm just uh, very observant, I guess, at the moment of how our political leaders are leading change. So it's uh, an exercise in containing anxiety through uncertainty. I was actually, I, I might ask you a couple of questions about it later. Um, it's it's an interesting case study almost on a macro level. Um, let's just go back to the basics though. We're talking about leading change today. What's your theory of the case? What's that through line that goes through your work? Yeah, well, let me just start with a definition of what do I mean by change? Because mm. I'm often asked that. And I define um, change as the disturbance of repeating patterns. Mm. Change is the disturbance of repeating patterns, which probably um, explains why it's so hard to do because disturbing <laughs> things and things that repeat habits, patterns, you know, patterns are very stable structures, so it ain't easy. Mm. My main um, premise um, is essentially that most, if that's the definition of change, most change is what I call in action mode rather than movement mm. mode. And by action, I mean people trying to get to new places, but using old routines. So, for example, going on a change process to become more agile, and yet the change process is heavily risk managed and centralized. So that's when you're caught in action. And I contend that the so-called 75% of change efforts that fail are because they're caught in these repeating routines. That's what I call action, the unconscious repetition of past routine. I contrast action with movement. Movement I define as going to the source of what is creating the patterns in the first place, mm. using a very, very different how, bringing in new outcomes through very, very different means. So my through line is to really have people first understand what is change, are you in action or are you in movement, and how do you create movement? And how, how has change sort of changed over the last decade? Um, you know, we keep on talking about complexity, speed, um, that VUCA environment. Um, what effect has had that, that on the process of leading change? Yeah, great question, Hugh. And I've been in this field now, goodness me, almost 30 years now. So I can sort of look back a bit, you know, over time itself. And I think you know that I have this phrase, is change changing? Yeah. Um, is it is it fundamentally of a different nature these days? And is change changing for me though? Is all about how change has now become a um, an ongoing process. It is no longer an event. You know, mm. do a change. It is ongoing. So I always use now the gerund changing. It's a constant feature of our landscape. So for me, the biggest difference is the fact that it is ongoing. Yes, it's disruptive. Yes, the pace is quicker, but it's it's kind of like a constant now. And that therefore leads to another big shift. If it's so ongoing, 
um, about 20 years ago when I was in this field, change was more kind of what I call the downstream activity. You first yeah. defined your strategy. You know, what are we going to do? What new markets do we need to restructure? And then, oh, and now let's do the change management when it comes to implementation. So I was usually called in at more, you know, the back end of the pantomime horse, so to speak. <laughs> um, but because it's now an ongoing feature and because the what the answers to today's disruptions can be so unclear, all you can do is focus on the how. All you can do is focus on innovation skills. All you can do is build leaders, you know, open-mindedness so that when the what becomes clearer, you think, ah, now we've figured out the strategy, you're already ready to change. So I, I, I kind of quite like this now because I feel that change has become more upstream now. You, in, a, in a sense, you can start with the change. You start with bringing in new skills and more innovation before you do strategy. So I think it's the second thing is it's more of an upstream activity now. It's no longer what you do as an afterthought. Mm. And I, I was at your uh, session at the National Management Conference, I, I think it was back in 2018 now at this stage. And what was struck me was that philosophy that seems to, it leans into the messiness, uh, that complexity that we're trying to control. It doesn't try to control it, it just leans into it. Yeah, I, I think it's usually our egos that think we can actually manage it or control <laughs> complexity. And by definition, if it's complex, you know, no one individual can be in command, right? It's, it's, it's just too vast. It's too uncertain. Um, and if it is disruptive change, you know, by definition, you can't go from one stable state to another new stable state without first going through yeah. a bit of chaos, you know, a bit of randomness, a bit of getting lost because unless you do that, you'll end up again with the same solutions. Um, so getting things a bit messy, uncertain, trial and error, uh, being in confusion a bit. I've read a great book recently called The Field Guide to Getting Lost, <laughs> which is actually putting a positive connotation on just not knowing what to do and getting lost and being okay to be with messiness. And, and through messiness, you start to create new patterns. Um, you know, of, of, a, of a different order. So I say that you can't control complexity, but I'm sure we'll go on to look at how we can still be maybe in, in a bit of command over the conditions yeah. beneath it. Absolutely. And, and just on a larger level, before we dive into that, is the human mind ready for this? Are, are we hardwired for stability to desire it? And what happens when we don't have it? Yeah, wow. That goes back right to our ancestors, I guess. And I did do a bit of physical anthropology um, when I was at university studying how, how we've evolved as a species. Um, I wouldn't say that we're hardwired necessarily for stability. I would say that we're hardwired to repeat. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, because the brain is a pattern recognizing organ. Um, and we repeat things, we do things on autopilot, basically, because that allows us to do so many things at once, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, and because we are always looking to repeat, we become very consciously competent at doing so many things. But the challenge becomes, you know, when the environment changes around you, as you're saying, uh, can the human mind sort of match the level of complexity, mm. I guess, in the environment around it? Because we often repeat things because we're hardwired to be safe. We want to be secure. We want to be safe. Therefore, the brain prefers to cope with what it knows. But the, um, the irony, of course, is that if you stay stuck in repeat, that could be the least safe thing to do. 
in a world that's constantly changing. So the question is, how do we override our biology? And it can't be done. It certainly can be done, but it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, that sounds tough. Uh, what's, the, what's the leader's role in that balance? So uh, just in a general sense, and we're, we're talking about the, the coronavirus there. So how can a leader create a feeling of not stability, as you say, for their people amongst chaos? How can they feel that make them feel comfort in the complexity and the change? Yeah, um, I think I tweeted recently about the importance of what I call container leadership or the capacity to contain anxiety, yeah. which we found was one of the core skills in in leading change well. And um, I, I love working with the theory of complex adaptive systems. And the Santa Fe Institute um, has got amazing research and people from all around the world, from biology, physics, psychology, anthropologists. And what they basically study is how can, how can you rapidly respond to an uncertain environment um, and, and, and keep on innovating. And they found fascinatingly that systems that have an equal balance of both stability and chaos are the most innovative, adaptive systems. So how does that apply to the current situation that the world is finding itself <laughs> In. And this is the balance leaders have to strike. Yeah, all of our political leaders are saying we can't create panic, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and yet, at the same time, we need to speak truth. So, how do you get over the truth? How do you get over the, you know, the mortality rates or how this can spread? I.e., you're creating some tension. You know, you're you're creating a bit of chaos and uncertainty you've got to say those things otherwise people think that you're just trying to put a duvet around them right and protect yeah. them. so you've got to have reality you've got to create edge you've got to create tension and at the same time you have to do what we call containing leadership which is to um, alleviate the anxiety um, and, and and how you do that essentially is be on top of your facts yeah um, say we have a process in place if you look at chris witty who is our chief medical officer here in the UK, he is an absolute master at giving the facts in a way that you think, oh, you know, I could go into danger with this guy I, and I would trust <laughs> him, you know. So trust is really important. Um, a leader who can be affirming, build trust, even if the world seems if it's about to collapse and it's all very scary and very frightening. So speaking truth and at the same time containing anxiety. How, how do you do those two things well? It's funny, um, I, I always promise not to mention Trump on this podcast, but when you look at the truth, he has been trying to stable the market, but what the market's been looking for is sort of a medical truth that they can then plan for. So his lack of transparency has basically caused his own problems. Yes, well, I think he is looking to uh, protect and safeguard. The, the, I think the, the issue with Trump is that it's usually just himself or his own nation. And he you know, forgets the profound interconnectedness. So he will search for the enemy so that we can blame, you know, in a certain way and reassure people and say, don't worry. You know, we're, it's all them, the enemies. And I, I'm fine. I am your protecting parents. So I think he acts as a bit like the protecting parent who will, you know, fend off the forces of evil. Mm. And that can create, I guess, some short term um, people feeling, oh, my goodness, he's going to protect us and look after us. Um, however, you know, are they being hoodwinked? Question. And when you, you put the, the leader and you sort of rank them amongst all the elements you need to create successful change, where does the leader sit in that rankings and why? 
oh well high up in my books Hugh um and I think you know from our research which we've done over you know two decades now we do a lot of what we call variance analysis to look at what makes the difference between success and failure in situations of high magnitude you know high high uncertain um context for change and the quality of a leader's skill keeps on coming up as the single biggest variable and in fact it explains just over 52 percent of the reason why big change succeeds or fails now in any variance analysis anything over 20 percent is a high swing factor mm -hmm. you know for one factor to determine so much of the outcomes so we tested other things like the quality of your change design, the process, how good your communications are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but what leaders say and do, and we'll go on to look at and how they are inside themselves, mm -hmm. is the biggest differentiator. Um, I just want to step back a little, and, and you talked about a series of busy actions. Um, firstly, can you briefly, briefly just remind the uh, listeners of, of what that is again? Yeah, so busy action is when you're caught in today's routines trying to get new results. Give you an example maybe to illustrate. Yeah, go, go. Um, you know, for example, I talked earlier, for example, about the agility mm -hmm. um, and how they were getting extraordinarily busy. One organization I was working with were getting very busy launching lots and lots and lots of initiatives and programs about agility. Lots of scrum technology was being introduced that was on top of the work, right? So often you're in busy action when you're layering new things. So the work's not changing. You're just layering lots of programs yeah. onto the organization. People are getting very busy, going on training programs. But the irony was that the way these programs were being run was in a very, very sort of you know non-agile way. So they were still stuck in today's routines, even though ostensibly they were bringing in um, change. And, the, why do we do this, you? We do. We talked about the brain earlier, but you know, naturally, if we're anxious, we start to get busy. Yeah, well, I am. <laughs> if I'm anxious, <laughs> what can I do? You know, I'll go and do a bit of shopping, or I'll I'll yeah. reorganize my sock drawer, or something like that. You know, so <clears throat> when we're anxious and in any situation of change, there's anxiety. We tend to just want to do something, get busy, and, and it's a very easy to to um, fall into that trap. How do you recognize it if it's happening in your organization during a change initiative or maybe reviewing an old change initiative? Now, it, it seems sort of surface level. Yeah, OK, we didn't actually shift the dial that much. Mm. But how do you see it sort of at a micro level almost, step by step level? Um, yeah, I mean, at the macro level, it's it's epitomized by you're putting in a lot of effort into your change but you're getting diddly squat outcomes. <laughs> you know, that, that's <clears throat> kind of like things, it's, there's a drag, you know, we're yeah. doing a lot, but it's not, as you say, moving the dial. It, it reminds me of when I was um, at Pepsi quite a long time ago now, <clears throat> and working with an amazing um, leadership team who knew a lot about change. Roger Enrico was the CEO. He was a great change leader. But I remember um, a lady called Indra Nui, um, who ended up running um, PepsiCo um, globally. She said to me, her definition of change is is the customer experiencing your organization differently mm. and I find that fascinating because if you go to your front line or your whoever you it could be a customer or whoever you know, you know your system is serving do they on a day-to-day -day basis experience a new culture a new way of doing things a new process is life easier for them 
And if there's been no change, you know, on that boundary, that periphery of your organization, you've probably done a lot of internal stuff, mm. but you're not impacting, you know, the market um, in a different way. So, it's, funny, it's funny how often we separate the organization from the customer over time. Um, you, you've also described it as unconsciously repeating your own story. Um, can you give an example of that sort of thing happening in an organization? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, <clears throat> one maybe that just at a meeting it was epitomized. Um, and one maybe more on a, on a bigger change process. But I was working with an organization last year and their change process was all about reducing the, um, the power distance, the hierarchy. It was quite a command and control decision decision making structure so and silos you had to go up the chain of command up the top they had to make the decision then it came down the other silo um, and then you know six months later you sort of implemented the decision (laughs) so they were trying to reduce hierarchy that was their conscious you know intention of the change so i was with my um colleagues and we were working at a, a big leadership event of theirs and i was going to do a um, a little session on the stage after the CEO. And I noticed that in the room, Hugh, all of the seats had been lined up, you know, in straight rows. Yeah. And in the very, very front row, there were like bits of paper on each one of the seats. And it said <laughs> VIP reserved. Yeah. So this was a conference about reducing hierarchy. And yet, as I got onto the stage, I thought, what? <laughs> what's kind of going on here? So I asked the CEO a bit boldly, maybe, hopefully I was going to be asked back. Um, <laughs> How come, you know, we've got a slide behind us about reducing hierarchy and yet with the front rows all VIP reserved seating? And it's fascinating how they responded. It was all about, well, um, our vice presidents um, do speeches and they've got to sit near the stage, right? Yeah. So the conscious, you know, explanation was ease for the VPs. So I turned to the VPs, they all now sat down and I said, how many of you are giving a speech today? And one person. <laughs> so for me, that's a lovely little example, you know, of how it's what I call institutional blindness. Um, even though I could see it so clearly, you yeah. know, the people in the system were not conscious of the repeating pattern. Even though their language was saying one thing, they were still repeating the story within. I think you also remember a story of mine, Hugh, where I was working with a partly sort of government funded um, agency here in the UK. Mm. And they were trying to move to become more commercial because their sources of funding from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office were being removed and they were having to get commercial funding. And the way you influence change in that agency was all about writing very, very good papers, you know, the perfectly crafted memo. Um, I know. I heard about this, and I said, "I have to work for that organization." I'm a great memo writer. Oh, so beautiful! And, and you know, look, you, as a graduate trainee, you're trained on how to craft the perfect memo and subparagraphs and all yeah. of that stuff. Anyway, the the leader went away and did some really great visioning work with his top team about you know the organization of the future, where we need to move towards. And then when I asked him how is he going to launch this new vision, you can imagine what he said. It was. I need to write a memo, <laughs> you know, it, it's got to be, go through all of these governance board processes. And I said, you're kidding me, you're writing a memo about how to stop the organization writing memos. So, yeah, that's what I mean by repeating patterns and uh, unconsciously repeating our stories. 
And and you've talked about this before. And an organization's repeating story is often a reflection of the leader's repeating story. What's your own story that that led you into this area? Yeah, well, it's 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 quite a story, uh, you, which, as you know, is is quite um, has my heart in Ireland. But I, in my uh, latest book, still moving, um, my opening sentence is how my life began in change which is hardly therefore surprising why I'm a sort of a change uh, person. Uh, so I was um, adopted. I was um, born to Irish um, biological parents and I was put up for adoption. Mm. So at the very start of my life, I had a massive disruption. I was out of control and had an uncertain future and I didn't know what the solution was going to be. Mm. And um, I was then adopted and born and actually born in Lancashire, brought up by... Um, by my mum and dad, um, English parents. So my story began in a profound disruption. Mm. And I think therefore, it's kind of like why I tend to really enjoy working in the field of change because <laughs> after that cataclysmic start of my life, no change ever appears that kind of terrible. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've got a visceral, you know, memory of something that was really quite scary and, and, mm -hmm. and dramatic for me. So that, that, that's the upside. I, I, I repeat the story of really enjoying disruption. And I'm, I'm quite bold, I guess. And <laughs> what a good friend of mine said to me last week, um, I don't, me, I, I never tend to see keep out signs. So <laughs> my life, you know, I just don't see keep out, I'll, I'll just go in, you know, and I'll go in and, and try something. But but the but it's also meant that I've grown up um, when I was doing big restructuring jobs. I, as an adopted child myself, it's not true for every adopted child. I mm -hmm. my my triggers were about pleasing other people, and being as perfect as I possibly yeah. could. So my repeating story is to not upset people, to do everything I can to make them feel good, and to do the perfect solution. I don't want anything to look wrong or fall off. You know. We were talking about messiness earlier, um, yeah. for example. And I had to learn when I was in top change jobs myself that that story didn't help me when I was leading change. And I had to unhook myself from that story and, well, and learn as a leader to sort of disrupt that routine that was deep buried inside me. Was there a moment where you made that connection between your personality and how it manifested itself in work? Or was it a, a more of a longer uh, reflection period? I think it was a long reflection period, if I'm honest, Hugh. Yeah. I've had coaches um, in my personal life. I've uh, had a psychotherapist. I've done a lot of work on on myself. And I think there was a period in my life, maybe about 10 years ago, where everything seemed to be changing personally, professionally. And it was at that moment where suddenly it went, tung, 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 tung. oh, my goodness, you know, what I've been learning about there in my life, I now see that happening in my professional and work life as well. So it's, it's, you know, often when, you know, the world seems most uncertain and difficult, that's where you have most learning. Yeah. When you are being challenged and, and you, you, you understand that your coping routines that have got you to a certain place aren't going to help you through a massive transition, then you start to think about maybe creating a, a, a different story. And it's not that you're changing yourself. You still have to be authentic. People often yeah. ask me, well, if you're changing your story, then are you no longer authentic, Deb? <laughs> fine, fine about being authentic to who you are, but not being caught up in a, a story that might not always serve you in the present moment. 
And uh, again, let's let's take practical or not practical single moments. Was it was there any time where you uh, you consciously said, "No, this is a coping routine. I'm going to flip the switch and change the mindset." What was that first sort of moment of experimentation and revelation? Ah, uh, yeah, and and that this is all about. You know, we're going to go into looking at how to switch your inner, what I call the inner game. Mm-hmm. And I tell the story of when I was a um, people director at BBC Worldwide and we were managing a big relocation because um, I was responsible for all of offices and technology as well as the HR uh, function. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was, I, one of my tasks every week on Tuesdays was to chair the risk committee because it was quite a big risk. You know, if you're managing a broadcasting organization where the news has to go out at six o'clock every night or whatever yes. you know if you suddenly move offices and people switch on telly or go online onto iPlayer and it doesn't work that's sort of you know that's not good news so the risk committee was really quite central I had people from audit and all, all kinds of um, and I remember um, I didn't think it was very I didn't think it was a perfect process <laughs> this <laughs> for perfection. I thought it could be maybe done a bit differently and I was wanting to, um, you know, maybe change out some of the people. I'd newly arrived, um, wanted to get my dream team in, you know, all of this stuff about perfection and I'm going to really please my new boss and all of that stuff was going on inside me. But then I was really getting into this whole thing about projection and beware of your inner world and how you're projecting it and is that going to be helpful. And so I, I, I consciously decided to maybe do more work on myself rather than change the people or change the process. So I decided to drop my judgments and my desire for things to be different to what they were and say, Deb, just learn to be absolutely accepting of how it is, being really fine with how everything is, and to really look at the value of it and to think how how is it helping, be curious about it. And so I went into a meeting one day, you know, this was now probably the fifth week of me chairing these meetings. All I changed was myself and my attitude towards what was happening to me. And it was phenomenal how that meeting transformed. People were energized, excited. I thought they were being more creative and how they were looking at risk. And they hadn't changed. The agenda hadn't changed. All that had changed was my inner attitude to my experience and and I'll never forget that morning and that is not kind of my road to Damascus but it (laughs) sort of went wow this stuff makes a big difference work on yourself before you work on other people I think as you put it on uh, at the National Management Conference how cheap is that uh, yes there's a a process yeah um so let's look at a leader, how they can reflect themselves, the listeners out there, and really explore how themselves as a person manifests in themselves as a leader. A lot of it is actually contained in your book, Still Moving. Um, can you just give us an introduction to the concepts behind the book? Yeah. So I put these two lovely words, seemingly opposite words together, still and moving. Yeah. Um, so the, the still uh, relates to your inner world, the stillness of your inner world. And we have four skills, we call them inner capacities, that make up what I call your to-be list, the quality of being, the quality of your stillness. Mm. And then moving is uh, for what we call external practices, things you have to do to lead change well. So they are your to-do list. So in Still Moving, in a nutshell, we work, or I write it, but it's on the backs and and collaboration with my amazing colleagues at Still Moving. Um, We go through step-by-step the four inner skills and the four outer 
practices and they're a bit like a flywheel if you can imagine a flywheel you know these four mm -hmm. things in the middle your inner to be list really you know amplify the quality of what people see you doing they're on the outer side of the spiral and, and the more you focus on these four inner skills you'll be able to do change in a much more uh, effortless way so that's just the introduction four mm. inner skills four outer practices in combination those eight things lead to 52% of the reason why change succeeds. And I'd like to focus a little bit on becoming still. Um, I, I kind of equate this with the Archimedes. I'm actually not sure if it's Archimedes. Uh, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. Is that the right way of looking at it? I think it is. I don't know the uh, context to that quote, but it certainly sounds exactly, Hugh, what I'm talking about here. And uh, in the book, I uh, recall the story of when I was on my, I do an annual uh, retreat every winter. Uh, and this time I went to a, a silent retreat in, in the Netherlands. And every morning before breakfast, we were taught by this amazing guy called Mark to do Qigong. Um, and Qigong is a form of sort of like um, movement or stillness more to speak with the, with the body. It's, yeah. it's a much more gentle form of, chi, of Tai Chi. Um, and Tai Chi is more, you know, agile and people are moving around and, and you hardly do anything in Qigong. It's about your breath and it's about your posture. And I remember asking Mark, Mark, um, do you also do, um, you know, uh, Tai Chi? And he, and he turned to me, he said, no, he said, when I went to my teacher, I was trying to do Tai Chi and move and be agile and, you know, jump around. And my teacher said to me, Mark, before you learn how to move, you have to learn how to stand. And I love that. He said, unless you are standing well in the world with the right posture, um, you know, then your movement will be a lot of effort. And I guess what I do right now, I had a bad back last year, Hugh, you might know. And mm -hmm. I really got into Pilates, <laughs> um, which is all about your inner core. Yeah. Um, and, and the more you can focus on the stability of that inner core, you can move your spine, you can move your limbs with much greater Ease. And since I've been doing um, Pilates, I have learned how to stand in a completely different way. And I now find I have no back pain. I can run now much more easily. Um, and often, you know, I'll even get leaders doing a bit of core work, doing a little bit of Pilates. And as soon as we do a from two, you know, we'll do let, let's move your arm down your leg without accessing your core. And they do that and they say, right, now let's access your core. And I've got an exercise to do that. Now, bend down from your core rather than trying to stretch your arm down. And the moment they engage the core, their arm just moves right down to the floor. I'm having a muscle just listening to this, Deborah. Yeah, do you love it? <laughs> maybe you're doing it as I'm talking you through it. But <laughs> this thing about the better you can stand and engage your core, the easier the movement will be in your body. It's the same for leadership. And yeah, let's let's go into that. So, so how can uh, the leader move towards? We're let's not say attain, uh, but move towards that sort of state of being mentally that they can sort of look within and, and recognize what they are. You talked about uh, coaching, therapy. I, I, I'd imagine three hundred and sixty assessments, that sort of thing. What is the sort of process for someone out there going? Okay, this sounds like something I'd like to to look at. Well, it's, it, it's number one, it takes a lot of practice. Mm. <laughs> it's not a toolkit, right? I've, I've been on this course and I can now be a being, you know. Yeah, it's, it's yeah not, exactly. It's, it's daily effort because the ego will always override it. So it takes a lot of practice. 
But the, the primary thing is about creating time and space to become still and to notice your inner world. Now, um, some people do that through classic meditation, you know, or focusing on, on your breath. Some people like to journal, you know, so they'll spend a quiet time before their busy day starts, just, you know, tuning in what's going on for me right now, what thoughts are coming into my mind, how's the quality of my heart rate right now, any feelings that are coming up for me. Just be still, notice, write them down in a journal. Because the key thing here, Hugh, is that the moment you notice something, you change something. Mm. Uh, and this is the fascinating thing. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's Schrodinger's cat or something, but the moment you are aware of something, that object of your attention will change. So it's incredible how you can move something outside of you just by noticing it inside of you. So the act of looking is almost more important than the way you look at it. Absolutely. So yeah. obso observation is an intervention. And and I, I, that's why I do a lot of work with the Church of England right now. And, you know, this whole notion of being a witness, yeah. which, you know, comes a lot from a religious um, sort of worlds. But the, the power of being a witness to something um, can change the world. And going back to effortless change, <laughs> isn't it amazing how by a leader becoming more attentive, they can start to change things. But in terms of though, do you need someone external at some point? Because it's very hard to see your own mistakes and your own sort of flaws and strengths. Um, so do you need someone to, to at least talk to and bounce off? That's the funny thing, isn't it? Because only you can enter your inner world. Mm. So when you're learning to master your inner world, you know, sometimes classic coaching doesn't help because nobody knows your inner world better than you. Yeah. Um, but what a coach can do is, I guess, you know, um, they can alert you to the outer signs of your inner world. <laughs> <laughs> so a coach who will be sitting thinking, well, you know, you're saying that, Hugh, you know, that you've had a great day and whatever, whatever. But I'm sitting here experiencing you as distracted and anxious. Now, I'm not saying that's what you are like now. Yeah. yeah. But but often it's it's called this the, it's called mirror neurons. So what is getting your state of your mind will leap to another person. So great coaches don't just sit there saying I think you should improve the way you do the meeting next week. They will use the experience of you in the moment as a reflection of your inner state. So it's so it's more subtle kind of feedback you yeah so for just to take your example so if a coach said to you deborah you were very eager to please in that last meeting you could then sort of reverse engineer that by looking inside and saying why was i so eager to please yes i think a coach would name what they were seeing um they might then ask another question which was you know where does that come from yeah um or you know what's your earliest memory of that pattern which is always a great coaching <laughs> question because um, it helps you go right, you know, right the way back to source. So, of, of course, you know, holding up the mirror can help you be open to what I call self-scrutiny. Um, yeah, I, I think, as you say, holding up a mirror, I'm sort of, I'm saying coach, but I think holding up a mirror is, is, is a more accurate way of saying it. Um, let's dive back into your, into the book, um, Making Disturbance Your Friend. It's, it's also a, lot, a large part of the, the program you're leading in IMI. My favorite part, you've already mentioned it, make disturbance your friends. Um, talk about what that is exactly. Yeah, um, getting comfortable with not being comfortable. 
So, you know, going back to the definition of change, disturbance of repeating patterns. So, so, so true change is never without discomfort. Um, and I always talk about how every change, every big true change, that's movement and not action, comes with a price, uh, not just a prize. Um, and, and often, you know, leaders oversell the benefits of the change. If only we put in this new IT system, you know, X, Y, Z will happen. And yet it comes with a cost. There is a price tag. It'll disrupt. Um, and that usually is, 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 is disturbing. So, um, so to get comfortable with not being comfortable and actually to see disturbance as a positive force rather than something that's dysfunctional. I always try to ban the word, you know, dysfunctional that's a dysfunctional team or that's yeah. a dysfunctional you know issue happening right now because disturbance is very creative and as uh, the sign of it is 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 great because it means that something is uh pushing against the norm so disturbance therefore is a sign that things are changing so why would you want to say oh gosh there's resistance that's bad right yeah so, so disturbance is something to kind of get alongside and and the main skill we found in this make disturbance your friend um is what we call edge and tension a leader's capacity to speak truth yeah and often the vision is not the disturbing part but speaking truth about current reality and what's <laughs> here now is far more difficult and, and in general, do te leaders tend to shy away from these disturbances or maybe sort of uh, delegate them out to sort of protect their own ego, maybe? Oh, yes, often. Um, I write in the book about my so many experiences, particularly when I was in uh, HR, you know, of, of maybe my business leaders wanting to do the fun vision stuff, but all of the, you know, the really difficult stuff and people impact, you know, let's send in the comms and the HR people, you yeah. know. To deal with the emotions right <laughs> you often get the oh it's going to get a bit emotional people aren't going to like this and that is far too little what i call container uh, leadership mm -hmm. um, so people either do one of two things i find you one is they they either bail out of the difficulty yeah. i.e they don't rock the boat um and they'll reduce the ambition or they won't speak the truth about all of the performance data we need to look at right now um, and that's because they just can't contain their own anxiety. You know, it's making them anxious. Or they fear the response of other people. They fear that if I do, you know, bring up the disturbance, uh, my instant uh, tendency is that people won't like me, you know, going back to wanting to please everybody. So I often used to bail out of going towards difficulty because I thought people won't like me. Um, or they will maybe panic or they'll leave the company or they'll think I'm being rude, you know, whatever we do. So it's usually we're, we're not on top of our own emotional response and also we're fearing the response of others. So you either bail out or you do it and then you run away and, you know, you get other people to deal with the, um, um, with the aftermath. Yeah. Um, the, the key thing a leader can do in an anxiety, we're talking about, you know, the coronavirus right now, is to be available is to go to the places. You know how people really don't like it when politicians don't go to the floods. Mm -hmm. They don't go to the victims of Grenfell Tower fire. You know, they don't get out there. That's when people need to see their leaders, you know, when there are, these disturbances are around us. And let's look at disturbances beyond sort of, uh, you know, genuinely bad things happening or blunders or anything. It's a, this is a silly question, but should leaders act with delight when some roadblocks come up during a change initiative? I'm thinking about behaviours to model for their for their teams and, and their people. 
Yeah, I think this going back to sort of looking on roadblocks is helpful because uh, if we didn't have roadblocks in our life, we wouldn't learn new skills. Mm. Um, it develops resilience. It develops you know resourcefulness, creativity. So it's kind of like you know bring it on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if life is easy, then we're not going to learn and and grow. You know, it's like the classic hero's journey. We need tests. We need challenges. You know, we need Ulysses. We need all of these heroic. We need to have roadblocks coming our way um, because they they can be very helpful if if your mindset towards them is one of learning and curiosity rather than judgment. And you know, I, I kind of wish it would would go away. I was working with a leader once, and they had a lot of roadblocks. They were trying to either sell their business. Um, or to acquire. So their place within their parent company was very, very uncertain. And then the regulator blocked something and then this happened. I'll never forget once when the the final, the answer was was there as to what the future state of the company was going to be. Um, The leader got his top 100 together and he was very tempted to say, thank goodness we're through those three years. (laughs) Those roadblocks and oh, what a hassle. We're now at the end of the tunnel. We now have the light. And I was just suggesting to him that it's in very disrespectful of time. That is very disrespectful mm-hmm. of those roadblocks. Can you look on it and, and give difficulty a, a, a respectful systemic place? And he really took that to heart. And he went up to this meeting and he really almost looked back over the three years and bowed to it with respect. <laughs> and gave thanks because... They were now, they had the skills, the resourcefulness, the, the camaraderie that they didn't have at the beginning of these three years. And, and that's at the end of a, a process. Where should a leader place those disturbances in their updates on any sort of ongoing change within the, the company? Should it be top priority or top focus? Well, <clears throat> I think there's a rule of, well, I think it's called positive psychology. The research shows that I think it's called the two to one rule. Yeah, um, which is kind of like two on the positives, what's going well, <laughs> and maybe and then a third, you know, two to one, on what's proving difficult right now. So the the thing is, you've got to do them together, but maybe there's just a slight tipping balance towards you know the resources, you know, the um, the tailwinds rather than the headwinds, right? Yeah. But, you've but got it's to- quite it's still quite a high ratio of of, of headwinds to tailwinds. Definitely, definitely. Funny when you say that two to one. I remember there was a recent study. I think in relationships, it's seven to one. You have to do seven. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to just sounds like you got a tally there, Hugh, on something. <laughs> it's very personal to me. Um, so I, I want to go into the process because because people will be listening out there and saying this is all very well, but I need to do a a, a and B by next year, and I want to put a process in 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 place. So it's not a template, but there are key actions and actions you continue to do, as you say, to create the right conditions to ch- for a change. Let's take one to start with, um, start small and experiment on ripe issues. Can you just talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. And, and it goes to what, um, you know, we call it still moving emergent change, choosing mm-hmm. a more emergent change approach, which is less top down and programmatic, you know, rolling out a huge change across the whole organization basically ripe issues are about where is there the most need where where is the customer most complaining or is there a group part of the organization where 
you know, there's most energy to do things really, really differently. But something that is really burning, it's a hot topic. Um, you know, where where are those places? Because um, needs sort of organize fields, you know, so our energies and patterns of behavior are always organized around need, be that for food or need for health, you know, we need needs, right? Um, Because they're very energetic. So where's their greatest need for a transition or the change? And, And when I say start small is to find that pocket in your organization, could be a business unit somewhere or a team or a certain product group, whatever it might be, that has the ripe issues. But in a way, that team is also like a, a fractal of the whole organization. Mm. Um, so they, they, in a way, they are prototypical. You know, it is a classic town in your retail network that is very typical, but something's happening there that's very different to everywhere else. Let's just prototype. Let's just do some experiments there first. Um, learn from that, um, you know, experiment, and then take it um take it elsewhere. So that, that's the whole notion of starting small and experiment. It's not continuous improvement. You know, the classic Six Sigma, you know, Kaizen. Kaizen, which is always, you know, little experiments. No, in emergent change, you're working at the level of the whole system still, but you're going to little pockets that are sort of like, you know, epitomize the bigger issues, mm. learn there, and then rapidly scale up um, from there. Um, Let's talk about the, the now and next philosophy, um, essentially working in the now rather than sort of pre-laid two to three year strategic plans. Can you just talk that through, please? Sure. That now and next philosophy. <clears throat> yeah, well, it goes back to this ongoing disruptive world right now where because the landscape's continually changing, how do you know mm. now where you need to be in three years time? Because the world will look very, very different. Um, I, I say it's like navigating the Mississippi River. It's so fast. It's so huge. All you can do is navigate from one bend to the next. And when What's you get to the end of the river, you have to stop. What does the next stage look like? And then you plan um, the next stage. What's the danger there? Surely it would be very easy to get off track, to, to go down a tributary rather than going down the river. Like <laughs> people, do, people do love tangents. And I can oh, imagine groups exploring the most... What? How do we keep it on track towards the overall uh, strategic goal? Yeah, well, that's where also with emergent change, I talk about the condition of having a very um, having a firm um, intention. Mm. So that you have to have some kind of guiding north star intention that pulls the system into the new directions. So you always have that, and that then you know whether it's the small experiments or doing the now and next. You always have, I once drew this huge big arrow on a flip chart. And then within this big arrow were lots and lots of little arrows, like an armada of ships, you know, yeah. maybe. But but basically, uh, the armada was all was all floating from southwest to northeast, you know. Um, so you need to hold that centralizing um, intention. So the now and next has some kind of boundary conditions to it. And and would that overall sort of the big arrow, let's call it, would that be the big arrow of the strategy or what we now call often the purpose or mission of the company? Yeah, it could be a combination, of course, because mm. um, you could put the purpose and mission at the top of the arrow. And they, I mean, purpose and mission is obviously, you know, the why, why we are existing, where are we, um, and, and strategy is, well, you know, what are the big what, that, or, you know, how are we going to get there? So, you know, the, the, clearly the having purpose and mission and having a, a strategy um, is very important. But I think in today's world, for me, Hugh, it's more about purpose and mission. I do find that strategy is more less of a fixed process these days. I was saying that earlier. Yeah. 
Um, whereas having a constant purpose and mission that can really breathe life through everything. So, for example, I once did some work with the Department of Work and Pensions here in the UK, um, and their biggest transformation was around helping the pensioners, you know, making sure that people have financial security uh, once they've stopped working. And um, I worked with a very, very gifted leader who'd come in to lead that department through quite a radical change, new IT systems, all kinds of stuff. What she did, which was so brilliant, or encouraged everybody to do, was to stick a photograph of their grandma or grandpa <laughs> <laughs> um, on their work desk, you know, in their little workstation, as the key beneficiary that you have in mind. So if you're in the middle of doing something that's awkward or difficult or disturbing or boring, yeah. whatever it might be, look at your grandma, look at your grandpa. It's and an I, excellent, it, excellent way of uh, representing the mission, isn't it? I walked through that department and you just saw all these hundreds of these people. Um, and that kept the purpose and mission right center stage. That, that's brilliant. That's a fantastic example. Um, there are still going to be people out there right now listening and saying, I had a change toolkit or an innovation toolkit or a template and it worked for me brilliantly. Should we be now sort of shoving them off the stage and or should we be combining them with this sort of leadership behavior type techniques what's your opinion there on the the sort of leadership the the change toolkits that we, we've seen so often well i think number one is i would say hold them up to scrutiny yeah going back to action versus movement did they keep you feeling very good about yourself <laughs> you know, <laughs> and your annual performance review you could say i've launched this toolkit that toolkit so when you said they've been successful, just be really honest with yourself. What do you mean by success? Yeah. Um, and did they make a difference to the customer? Do you remember going back to what I was saying about, about Pepsi? Was mm. it truly needed? Um, who's, who was it really serving? Mm. Um, so hold them up to scrutiny. Were, were they genuinely game changers versus making you feel good or you know getting stuck in busy action? Um, and the second thing I'd say to that is that, of course, we need to do things, have processes, changing work, all kinds of stuff. But put them within a sort of what I call like a masterful, systemic change leadership process. Yeah. I'm working with a company right now who love their toolkits and processes, and they call them the meat in the sandwich, you know, the from to, their big change journey. What they realized, though, that they didn't have what they called the bread above and beneath this, which was the quality of their leadership skill and doing this more now and next emergent dynamic change process. They hadn't paid attention to those two things, which meant that the tool the toolkits were becoming self-indulgent and not skillfully deployed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say try and start with a blank sheet, only put the toolkits back in if you think they're really needed. Um, but most importantly, don't just, don't just have toolkits and processes. They've got to be combined with a brave, innovative, maybe slightly messy change process behind them and brilliant leadership skill. Yeah, it sounds like uh, a lot of people would change the change process to match the toolkit rather than the other way around. Yeah, yes, indeed. What's that, um, the hammer and the nail? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what can you tell me then about the results if you do take this sort of uh, leadership behavior approach to change? What are the results you can expect to see? Well, the first thing that comes to mind here is speed. Yeah. Because um, often clients will come to us to say, my change isn't going fast enough. You know, it's stuck. Um, what, what's happening here and by using some of these techniques um, you know the now and next leader skill getting better things move quickly they really do move quickly we've People seen that the last week or so 
Oh my goodness, yes. So speed um, is of the uh, of the essence. Secondly, I would say that it's more effortless. You know, mm -hmm. leaders report. You know, it's not that you can go home every day at four o'clock in the afternoon, because <laughs> um, no change without you know effort and time and energy. But it, it just flows with with greater ease. Um, so it, it, you don't have to expend so much energy when you get these things right. Those four inner skills, the four outer skills, using a now and next change process. It's more effortless. And I think the final thing I'd say, Hugh, and you've got, goodness me, I've got people now who I've worked with 10, 20, even 30 years ago. They'll come up to me now um, and they'll say, I know this sounds a bit dramatic maybe, um, but it's helped me in my life. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, you talked about the seven to one earlier with personal relationships, but mastering this stuff, people often read Still Moving and they say, this is not a business book, it's a life book. Mm -hmm. So you can get results outside even of your business or, you know, work context, where whether it's your family system or the, the scout troop, the church you're a member of, you know, it's, it starts to transform really everything once you start to see the world um, from a different place. Super. Um, and, and just finally, Ashley, you are leading a program in IMI, Leading Change for Senior Leaders. Um, <laughs> Can you just talk through what the, the program is um, and who it's for? Yes, you are really looking forward to this program. As you know, I did a speech at the annual conference, what, two years ago now, or a year and a half ago, and some masterclasses. So I went from like 45 minutes to three hours, <laughs> and I now have got three days, Yeah, which I'm really looking forward to. I, I think the first thing I'll say about this program is that it'll be um, a program uh, that changes rather than a program about change. Mm -hmm. Again, much what I was saying earlier about how it fundamentally changes your perspective on life. So the three days won't be sort of like passive, let's listen to lectures about all of these skills or, you know, this now and next change that Deborah's talking about. We will experience it in the room. So to be highly experiential. Um, and, and the main text as such will be the group dynamics. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the way I'll be doing it with my colleagues is we set up what we call a temporary institution. So let's say we have 20 leaders coming on this program. They will yeah. form for three days a company, the 20 of them. <laughs> oh, that'd uh, be interesting. I know. So it, it's kind of like going back to make disturbance, your friend. <laughs> yeah. So they, they won't be able to just sit at the back of the room with their notebooks, no? They will not. That's not <laughs> how we learn best. And I'm wanting people to learn the best they possibly can. So it's going to be highly experiential. We're going to be doing, of course, we'll use the cases that they're bringing from outside the room. Yeah. But the main learning will be about the dynamics in the room. And, and for those leaders, should they have a sort of change in mind? Or is this more about, no, this is how you will lead change in the future? Um, a current change um, situation context really helps you. Yeah. It makes it less abstract. So we'll be constantly iterating between the learnings in the room itself and how that then applies to their current change. So I would advise if, if people are wanting to come along, number one, think of a current change that you're leading right now. Number two, where somehow, it's what I, I use the word intractable. There is something that you just can't quite figure out about it, you know, <laughs> that, that you, you want to get a fresh perspective on. You know, the old ways of approaching it aren't working. And the third thing is, to have a change case that you have agency over as a leader, mm. i.e. it's not a change that is being done to you from the hierarchy, but it's a change where you are accountable for delivering the results. So you'll be able to leave this program 
with um, a, a way of transforming how that change is going to be. So you won't just go back to give feedback to somebody else how they need to lead the change differently, <laughs> but your head is on the block with this change. Super. Deborah, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to this new program in June and everything else that, that you'll be doing over the coming months. Thank you. Stay healthy. Stay well, Hugh.